We're going to be talking on today's morning show with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, who has been a pediatrician for many, many years and has written a memoir about his experiences as a pediatrician, uh, a book which is called a book which is called The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics. Uh, Mark Vonnegut has written also a previous book uh, called Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness and the Eden Express, which uh, have explored uh, another facet of his life, uh, his, uh, his struggles with, with mental illness. And uh, what also makes the story of Mark Vonnegut interesting is that last name of his. He is the son of the renowned writer Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I so appreciated reading this fascinating book uh, in which we uh, learn so much not only about the practice of medicine, but in particular the way in which the practice of medicine has undergone drastic and dramatic changes over the last uh, three or four decades. And many of those changes, much to the consternation of Dr. Vonnegut, uh, and which have caused him uh, great frustration, and, uh, and he sees many of those changes as, as causing far more harm than good. And he is uh, frank and clear in, in those concerns and criticisms which he raises as well uh, in this really interesting book published by Seven Stories Press, again titled The Heart of Caring. Dr. Mark Vonnegut, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you. I really, really am. Uh, I want to talk, first of all, about how this book, I suspect, is very different from uh, your previous books in which you touched on some of the difficulties you have had with, with mental illness. I wonder how dif- different did it feel for you uh, to be writing this kind of book? I mean, it feels very different. Um, the first uh, book was just sort of documenting or trying to document the the sixties and how uh, and and going out and setting a setting up a commune and the kind of positivity that I felt about the sixties and then having it crash and burn and the second book was sort of uh, trying to say that even if you have something like mental illness, you can go on to have a very full, wonderful uh, life and career. Uh, so that that both of them were more personal. And this is this book is really just about what it's been like to uh, to practice medicine and to tell the story um, so by patient stories like the the. Uh, first patient I deal with uh, flew into Logan Airport and she had a note pinned to her chest that said, I have bone cancer. Take me to Mass General. She was taken to Mass General. She got world-class care. Uh, myself and the head of anesthesia uh, were by her bed making sure she didn't suffer any pain. And all that care was given away. And that's something that's really, really changed. Uh, we used to make house calls when it was appropriate. We, pro- we we still do. I don't generally let people know that because it's a lot of work. But um, but there was an individual. Uh, you know, our individual personalities mattered. And so when we went to work, it wasn't like being a cog in a wheel. It was. Uh, and I tell lots of stories about people who did um, 
unusual, what people would say was unusual things, um, like treating depression and anxiety with puppies. Um, but it, you know, I want to emphasize that I love what I do and I think I do it well, but that there were lots of doctors who took what they learned in medical school and took what they learned from their teachers and, um, and used all that to, uh, to help people and that the demands of, uh, computers and, um, all those things take away from the ability of teachers uh, to teach. It takes away from the doctors to practice, and it ta- takes away from patients to feel they're being cared for. Hmm. I wonder, uh, I promise this is basically the only question I will ask you that concerns <laughs> your father, Kurt Vonnegut, but I really can't resist asking, uh, how intimidating was it for you to sit down and write a book uh, knowing uh, that so much of the world knows and admires the writing of your famous father, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, and, and I also wonder, uh, was, was he still alive at the time that you uh, wrote uh, your first couple of books? I know that he had died by the time you wrote yeah. this one, of course. But uh, I, wonder, I wonder if he was uh, either any help to you and or any sort of inspiration to you as a writer. He was alive. He said funny things. Like when I pointed out in my first book that the name of the author uh, was much bigger than in most first books, and he was quite proud to have passed on a name that somebody would want to print book uh, big on the cover of the book. Um, he, it, people who, it wasn't much of a shadow to grow up in. I grew up with somebody uh, who who didn't have enough money, who uh, whose stories were being rejected from magazines, who couldn't get a job teaching English at Cape Cod Community College, um, who was a really terrible uh, car salesman. And, and so I never, you know, I, I, I felt that he was sort of a younger brother who might get into trouble, and it was my job to try to keep him out of trouble. And... Uh, there was a point at which I lent him $100 for my paper route money. So, I mean, all that humanized him. And the writing of the books, uh, all three times, I, I had to feel that it was a story very worth telling uh, and, and worth going through the hard work of, of, of writing uh, a book. And sometimes he liked what I read, and sometimes he, he got ticked off. <laughs> so, it, was, it was an interesting relationship, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't like I was intimidated by what other people would call a literary icon, which I thought was a funny a funny thing to call somebody. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, and we're talking about his latest book, which is called "The Heart of Caring." A life in pediatrics. So, Dr. Vonnegut, uh, I have seen some place where you said that uh, you you entered medical school uh, as a refugee from mental illness. So, in other words, you went into medicine and ultimately into pediatrics uh, after your first bout with fairly serious mental illness. Can you explain the connection between the two? Uh, I think the connection um, was that 
I had difficulties, which in, included a four-month hospitalization, which, by the way, doesn't happen anymore, and I think it can, in certain cases, be necessary for somebody to adapt to the notion that they have an illness they have to take care of. Now, when you are admitted to a hospital, the first thing they do is start planning how to get you out of the hospital, and almost all hospitalizations are two weeks or less. Again, for reasons that are not dictated by patients or the needs of the patient. For myself, I was, um, you know, older. <laughs> Considering 28 older, it now amuses me. But um, and I wanted to prove that because I had had this serious health problem, um, I had a huge chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to prove that I was not damaged goods. And um, being able to do pre-med classes at UMass Boston, um, and you know that this was—I I grew to to truly love um, the field, and I've always, you know, loved math and uh, um, and and science and and uh and and so that that was uh that was to me that was part of recovery that i could do that that i could do more than landscaping and more than uh substitute teaching not that those were you know bad things to do but when i was recovering i truly didn't have a clear idea of what i was capable of and what i wasn't capable of my friend said that uh, going to Harvard Medical School was overachieving. I didn't, <laughs> which I thought was a funny comment. Hmm. You write at one point in your book, part of me wanted to be every kind of doctor, but I liked pediatrics and pediatricians best. Uh, describe, first of all, this way in which you really felt a tug to every kind of doctor there was, but then ultimately the tug was strongest towards pediatrics. Uh, help us understand how all of that happened. Uh, medical school is a wonderful education and a wonderful uh, experience to uh, you, you get to uh, work with a surgical team or a plastic surgical team or, uh, you know, an internist in their office or deliver babies uh, and uh, there was a time when there was a, a knife fight. Um, thankfully, nobody was seriously hurt, but it w I got to hear both sides of the story, and I get to learn how to stitch. And there were, um, you know, to me, it was all very interesting. But what I found most interesting and most hopeful was the resilience of children and how they got better, um, which... You know, in a lot of medical fields, you have to deal with the fact that a lot of people don't get better, and that happens in pediatrics, and it's it's uh, it's truly heartbreaking. But for the most part, you're dealing with very resilient uh, patients and uh, frightened parents who, um, you know, the job is to reassure, and I and I like that job. Hmm. That's one thing that was really interesting about your book is uh, that you don't just talk about sick children or injured children, 
but you spend some time talking about uh, working with with parents as well, and and in particular, there's a really interesting passage in the book in which you talk about uh, how tortured uh, so many parents are, and it's almost always mothers, interestingly, and not fathers, who just feel like they're doing a terrible job, and uh, yeah. you you call them you know the the worst mother in the world. I mean, that, that, that so many of them will feel like they are a TWM, ITW, the worst mother in the world. And um, as you have engaged in your practice for all these years, you've, you've come to see some interesting patterns in terms of who will be most prone, most likely, to have this feeling about themselves. Uh, explain a little more about that to our listeners and also what kind of help you try to extend to, for instance, a mother who finds themselves uh, feeling that about themselves as a mother. It's, um, it's a great joy that I can, in my practice and in my community, I, I run into uh, women who it's our little secret that they at one point felt like the worst mother in the world. I think the uh, there is a universal uh, feeling uh, of being a parent um, that you're not doing a good enough job. I think the mobility of people and the fact that they move around for jobs or whatever uh, isolates them from the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and the neighbors and the good friends who used to be there uh, for numerous mothers, reassuring them that they were okay, uh, teaching them how to put on diapers, teaching them, you know, how to react to an angry three-year-old. So I think there was a lot more support um, and the the uh, part of the being the worst mother in the world um, is they feel they don't know when to panic. And I feel um, that part of my job is to say, uh, do it right now. Let's just see the worst thing, you know, that happens. And I've got some extra time and you can just panic and I'll help you. That, you know, 3 a.m. is a bad time to panic. Um, and also I tell people that I, I have a list of the worst mothers in the world, and, and they're not on it. And I tell them that the worst mothers in the world don't care about whether they're the worst mother in the world. So, but, you know, that's not in any textbook, but it's, it's, a, it's a central part of what I do, uh, and it's very satisfying. And, I, I, you know, I, I love seeing, um, you know, a woman with five kids who once thought she was the worst mother in the world, or seeing somebody who fought me tooth and nail on immunizations and uh, and and now has uh, you know four fully immunized children and I get to smile at these people and they back and we have uh, we have these wonderful secrets mm. they're not really you know you you talk about another facet of your work uh, in in terms of of how you work with parents uh, is that one of the most important things uh, you and other pediatricians need to do is to protect your patients from black magic, snake oil, and quackery. And as you talk about this in, in more than one point in your book, it, it sounds like you see 
the parents of children as maybe being especially vulnerable or maybe especially susceptible uh, to some of this so-called black magic snake oil and quackery uh, that can really lead to, 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 to tough problems. First of all, is, is that kind of what you're saying? Do you think there's kind of a, uh, are, are parents of sick children especially susceptible uh, or vulnerable to this, to the effects of this? And, and, uh, and, and what are you talking about there? I mean, what would be a couple of the, the most interesting examples of that that you have seen? I think this comes up with uh, more with uh, chronic illnesses, especially autism, um, and uh, people do not feel that the standard uh, medical care is responding to their needs. I, I don't think uh, patients feel they get enough time to talk to doctors, that doctors have enough time, and so they are vulnerable to notions that... Uh, uh, you know, electricity or a combination of vitamins or, um, you know, a lot of hoopla is going to help their child uh, cope with their, with their autism. And, um, you know, part of my job when I tell patients a lot is, yeah, with these uh, chronic conditions, we're all working with a lot of unknowns. But I also, uh, one of the lines I use, I stole it from somebody else was uh, keep an open mind but your hand on your wallet and don't keep your mind so open that your brain falls out <laughs> I like that um, one of the things that you mention in terms of going into medicine in the first place is that there are, are basically no doctors at all in your family so you had almost no idea whatsoever of really what to expect uh, in terms of, of what medical school was going to be like or what being a doctor was going to be like. I'm curious what kind of surprises ended up coming your way. I mean, what, what has, I mean, were your instincts actually pretty good or, or in fact, were you really surprised again and again by what this life and what this work in fact was going to be like? My desire to be of service uh, is what helped me. And I do not think there are any or very many doctors or nurses uh, who go into medical care uh, not feeling that their primary job is to be of service and to take care of people who need taking care of. Um, and I've sometimes uh, said uh, when I talk to medical students, that if you're going into medical student into medical care uh, for money, you're probably not smart enough to do the job. Um, so, you know, I came in with this basic, basic wanting to be useful, uh, and partly because when I was having trouble with mental illness, I was not useful to anybody, including myself. Um, but what I loved and it, it, it was the personal, uh, you know, commitment of my teachers and what they were able to teach me. And it was, it, there were technical things, but it was mostly how to use my eyes and my ears and my hands uh, and to make, uh, you know, truly close and, and healing relationships to people who were sick. 
And I loved, um, you know, watching a, a master of what he did do a physical exam. And a physical exam is one of the things that doesn't get taught anymore. Um, being quiet and letting a, you know, a patient go on at length about their story is another thing I learned. And I watched the story come out so that the doctor really didn't have to work very hard to make the diagnosis. I love making fancy diagnoses, and every once in a while, um, now I can show off. But the real job of being a doctor, and I watched it emerge, was the desire to be of service and to use your hands and your eyes and your heart and your brain um, to help somebody. And that, and I watched most of my teachers have a good time and want to pass on those skills to me and other medical students. We're speaking with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, and we're talking about his book called The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, in which Dr. Vonnegut looks over some 40 years of, of, of work as a, uh, as a pediatrician. And by the way, this is work that I believe you are still doing to this very day. Is that right? Yes. And a patient asked me the other day uh, how long uh, I was going to do this for, and I told them I thought 100 was a nice round number. <laughs> One of the things you say that I, I think would never have stopped, I've not stopped to think about, I think partly because uh, my wife and I uh, never had kids, so I have never experienced this firsthand, but you say nothing brings out the advisor in people like a new baby. In other words, when somebody brings home a brand new baby, uh, all kinds of relatives and friends, co-workers, and sometimes near complete strangers uh, will be very, very quick to offer uh, a wide array of advice, some of it probably very ill-advised advice, uh, on on uh, on what they maybe should be doing or watching out for or what has worked mm-hmm. for them and so on. Um, I wonder what that is like for the pediatrician and what that was like for you. I mean, in a sense, did it make it difficult to do the work that you needed to do to sort of try to cut through that outside noise of, of all the advice that perhaps uh, young first-time parents were being given? I mean, what kind of challenge does that pose to the pediatrician? For me, it also made it fun because you would be dealing with different cultures that had different ideas. And my advice to patients was to always uh, smile, thank them for their advice, and ignore it. Um, because whether it was about starting, you know, solid foods too early or avoiding immunizations or splitting, you know, the whole immunization thing has, uh, to me, it's, it's a sign of how little people trust science, uh, anymore. And I, you know, I look at what science is doing and how much of it is about money rather than mission, but, um, for me, it's, you know, when a patient is, um, you know, questioning what I'm saying um, or whatever, I say that I hope they will come to trust me, but I don't assume that they will. And uh, it's also 
if I tell them something that empowers them by saying, you are the patient. And there are some of the patients in the book who I have told, uh, you have the misfortune of having a child who is an interesting patient, is a rare, has a rare condition, and you are going to get a ton of advice about what to do. But always remember that you're the patient, and what you say is more important than what your aunts and uncles and um and even other doctors have to say, take hmm. it into consideration, but but don't 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 take it too seriously. Right, and of course, uh, the other half of that advice, which you talk about at a couple different points in the book, is your advice to the parent: trust your heart. Your instincts have evolved over millions of years. You can probably trust them. Them meaning your instincts. I should think that would be. Uh, reassuring at least to an extent for a, a young, inexperienced, and uh, nervous parent? I hope so, and I, and I do think it is um, because, you know, people think they have to be uh, perfect mothers, uh, especially. You know, fathers are a little looser about, the, about they, they don't question themselves as much. Um, but if you can point out to mothers uh, that the human race would not have gotten this far if if babies needed perfect mothers. See, there, there is a developmentalist who said what we need is good enough mothers, you know. Hmm. And the hum- yeah. so that was, you know, the human race wouldn't be here if we needed perfect parents. Hmm. I wonder what kind of difficulty or challenge it poses to the pediatrician uh, when you are dealing with infants and and extremely young children who basically have not yet learned to talk or cannot talk in complete sentences, in terms of not being able to tell you exactly what's wrong uh, or exactly where it hurts or when it started to hurt or that kind of thing, I mean, the sort of thing that we completely take for granted when we're talking about older children uh, and into adulthood, patients who can be, in a sense, part of the conversation. Uh, what kind of a challenge does it pose to the pediatrician to be dealing with patients who cannot at least verbally communicate to you about what is wrong with them or how they are feeling? I, I, I don't think it poses that much of a challenge because if you do it regularly, you find out that babies don't lie. Um, and if you know how to read them, you know when they're anxious, when they're in pain, um, when, there's real, when they're really sick, when they aren't. Um, so I don't, I don't find it that much of a challenge. And uh, also you can point out uh, to parents of babies as young as three or four months, that they care a great deal about faces. They care a great deal about how their parents feel, and um, and they will uh, respond to care. I mean, they need to be safe, uh, and they need to feel cared for. Um, but they they do. They tell you by whether they smile, by whether they follow your eyes. Um, there's a game I call Monkey See, uh, which uh, if a baby makes a gesture just with an arm, even whether or not they control it, 
and I make a, and I mirror that gesture, the baby gets incredibly excited and will do it again and again to see if this is consistent. And so I think babies are communicating much more than they get credit for. And um, and so I, you know, <laughs> as I say, teenagers will lie to you, a baby will not. Hmm. What about the fact that by their, its very nature, uh, when you are dealing with a baby or an infant or a toddler or a youngster or a young child or an older child, that... Uh, particularly the younger a patient is, there is little or no history. I mean, there's very little arc uh, for you as a doctor to trace in terms of figuring out, oh boy, this this is a rapid, uh, drastic departure from what has been the norm for a long time. In the sense that, I mean, when, when somebody is 40 years old, and suddenly a symptom appears that they have basically never experienced before. That's, that's a dramatic event that they're very aware of and you're very aware of, and attention is drawn and something's done about it. But it just seems like when you're talking about uh, <laughs> someone who's one year older, two years older, three years old, it doesn't seem like there is that same kind of history where drastic departures are going to be as noticeable. Or is that also not as much of a problem for the pediatrician as we might assume? It's not as much of a problem because uh, uh, kids with this developmentally or in terms of an acute illness when there's something wrong, they stick out like sore thumbs. Uh, there was a bad flu season where I think I took care of as many as 60 children, but it was a matter of, of, uh, of saying flu, 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 pneumonia, flu, flu. But, but so I think, and also you can make predictions, uh, like a child with a really high fever who you say, okay, well, this is roseola. Uh, I can feel these lymph nodes, and I'll make a prediction that this fever is going to go on for four or five days. It's going to scare you, um, and then the fever will go away, and this rash will appear on their head, and, you know, on their face and shoulders. And so I use time as uh, my best diagnostic uh, uh, teacher. I find out next to nothing with blood tests. Uh, so... Um, but I do think kids where there's something wrong um, stick out like sore thumbs. I will be doing a well exam on a child and, you know, watching the brother or sister out of my eye, I, I will just say, uh, could, I, could I listen to this, his heart? Could I, you know, it's just that um, a child, even in your peripheral vision, um, I think most of the time, and I've certainly made plenty of mistakes, but an awful lot of the time, uh, if somebody has leukemia or, you know, serious heart disease or something, um, you can't help but notice it. Your book includes some stories of actual young patients that you have had. I don't know if you've changed the names or not, but certainly the stories are, are very real and authentic. And although some of them are are really fun, um, there are also stories that uh, are difficult and heartbreaking, uh, like a young girl that you call Adeline, who had a a very difficult 
medical condition that probably should have kept her from living nearly as long as she ultimately lived, but which created a whole host of problems. Or a or a boy you call Caleb who was born with uh, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta or brittle bone disease. Mm-hmm. You tell us born with over 100 fractures. I mean, he didn't live with 100 fractures. He was born, the moment he was born, he had 100 fractures in his in his little body. I wonder what kind of emotional toll does it take for a pediatrician uh, to be, in so many cases, dealing with innocent children, uh, dealing with sometimes incredibly sad and difficult situations. I mean, not that there isn't something very sad about someone who's 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 uh, contending with something, but it just seems like it would be especially heartbreaking uh, mm-hmm. when, a, when a youngster is dealing with something that they cannot begin to understand. Um, what is that like for you as the pediatrician, emotionally and mentally, to have to deal with that? With Caleb, I, you know, the person I uh, admired, and I, I think I say in the book, uh, that my impression was these are incredibly brave people uh, who who knew this was going to happen and how uh, we had to, you know, treat Caleb. Um, and thankfully, he, he became less fragile, but he was just, you know, how carefully we had to put him on the exam table, how he needed a special bed. Um, and one of the things about the story of Caleb, which is, you know, wouldn't have happened 40 years ago, which was now um, getting him a special bed um, and all the other needs he had, um, the, what became, um, for me, the understory there was his insurance company wouldn't pay for that. His insurance company said there's a wonderful program called, um, you know, Medicaid uh, and MassHealth that will provide you with these things. So this this insurance company that had been getting $20,000 a year from this family, something happened, and all of a sudden their job, from their point of view, was to get out of paying for it. So um, that, you know, you can't let that, prevent you or, you know, the steam coming out of your ears prevent you from finding this kid as good care as, as, as you can. And again, I'm dealing with orthopedists who have not necessarily uh, seen this disease. We're speaking with Dr. Mark Vonnegut. We're talking about his newest book, which is called The Heart of Caring. Um, in some respects, the heart of your book, or, and much of what you talk about, is tied up in this particular sentence. You write, the job of the doctor is to take care of patients. We did a better job of it 40 years ago. So let's start with that statement and, uh, and how and why that is true. How and why were you and, and your colleagues taking better care of patients 40 years ago than you are able to do today? We were not told what to do. And this is true of nurses, too. 
um, that part of our education was we learned how to ask for help when we needed help. The problem now is that you're overwhelmed with help and computers you have to click on, uh, and the job is to come up with the uh, coding and the level of the illness. And um, and and so back then, uh, 90% of what I did and what hospitals do uh, did and what nurses do was to take care of patients. And again, we asked for help when we needed it, but to be overwhelmed uh, by being told what to do, how much time to spend with patients, and checking off what boxes. Um, I would say um, doctors and hospitals are down to about 50% of what we do is responding to patients' needs. Um, I also mentioned, which nobody believes, that I took care of and made a living uh, charging $10, $15, and $20 uh, a visit. And we're able to do that because we had a really uh, low uh, overhead. And also, we were charging our patients uh, uh, about what, you know, they could uh, afford. And also, I think knowing whether or not your child has an ear infection is worth about 15 or $20. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and now that same bit of care um, you know, cost can cost 150 or 200 dollars uh, in an emergency room, um, and so, and you're given care by somebody who's never seen you, will never see you again, and can get out of the whole visit by saying, "Oh, you have an ear infection. Uh, here's your amoxicillin." Um, the way we did it back then, and the way we still do it now, is there's a lot more time explaining. Uh, to patients uh, what the condition is and what they need. Um, Most kids with ear infections don't need antibiotics, and that comes as news to people. Yeah, that speaks to uh, another statement, which is that once upon a time, when you were starting your medical practice, there was very little unnecessary care back then, and there is a lot of it now. That is unnecessary care. Yep. Where do we see that the most? Um, we see that in how uh, doctors are responding to needs other than the needs of their their patients. They are told that they're supposed to uh, deliver care in 10-minute increments. They're put under pressure uh, to fill out. Uh, I mean, the average doctor, I think they interrupt patients uh, within 10 seconds of the patients trying to tell them uh, what is wrong, uh, they spend 40% of their time looking at a computer rather than the patient, uh, and they have a grand total of 10 or 15 minutes, and they are going to have an extra five minutes or two hours a day, uh, you know, keeping up with their paperwork. It's you know, no wonder we're depressed, and no wonder patients don't trust us anymore. Hmm. You also trace that particular matter to the high rates of burnout that we see in doctors and nurses. And, and of course, some of that burnout, of course, now we can trace to some of the 
extraordinary challenges that have uh, come up with this COVID-19 pandemic. But I think even ahead of that, you trace a lot of the source of burnout to this sense of powerlessness that many doctors and nurses feel in terms of being unable to to truly help their patients the way they want to, that that it's not just kind of general overwork and long hours and emotional stress and burdens. You see this other thing, this matter of powerlessness, as driving burnout more than anything else. I do, and I do think it's like... uh it's like being a soldier and given, uh, you know, an order which seems, you know, which isn't right, and so they encounter uh, what is called moral injury. Uh, so they are doctors that are put in a situation where they don't have, uh, you know, enough control to do what they think they should be doing. I think one of the one of the things I love so much in retrospect. Um, about being an intern and a resident is we had a rock and roll band. So, you know, along with working a hundred hours a week, we found the time to, you know, play rock and roll. And the thing we kept saying is imagine what we could do if we could practice more. (laughs) So, but there was that rather than the notion of I have to get through uh, my patients in 10 minute slots or whatever. Um, so we had we had enough time, autonomy, and joy to have a rock and roll band. Right. In fact, you you talk about even back when you were a resident, uh, that residents were uh, necessary, respected, and expected to improvise. That is, uh, residents were given an, an an amazing amount of, in a sense, leeway and freedom. To, uh, to, to treat their patients uh, in the way that was, worked well. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and this sounds like this has also been a theme of your own medical practice over the years is, in your words, trying to figure out how to take care of patients on my own terms. Right. And I feel like I've been incredibly lucky. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is the concern that the next generation of doctors and the next generation of patients will not have the choices and options I've had. I've been able to treat anxiety and depression with puppies. Um, And I don't think, you know, and that was improvising and it worked and it it often worked. And people come back to me five, 10 years later and, and thank me for making them get the puppy. And I tell them, I didn't make anybody do anything. You got a puppy for your child, you know, for your family because it was the right thing to do. So, yeah, I was able to improvise. And, and I, I don't think I was that different from my teachers. I, I mentioned a guy named Dr. Dan who existed and is a wonderful, wonderful clinician, but he really was on a bike wearing shorts uh, in December, and he wore a beanie that had a uh, propeller on it. But the seriousness with which he looked at his patients and listened to them, uh, I don't think they noticed that they were dealing with somebody who was dressed like a lunatic. (laughs) By the way, uh, you tell us it was back in the 1980s 
that the U- United States Congress, in your words, decided to open up medical care to for-profit corporations, in a sense, mm-hmm. privatizing privatizing much of the medical uh, facet of our, our society. What exactly did they do in the 1980s? Uh, I mean, in, in what way did they open the floodgates to for-profit corporations? Initially, it was a good idea to, I don't think doctors, uh, I, 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 I don't think, uh, what is, it was, you know, to eliminate unnecessary care, to have doctors uh, not do so many tests. Uh, and it was a way of saving on the cost of care. Uh, and what happened now is we are dealing with the cost of not caring for our diabetics. We're dealing with the, the, the price of not providing good health care. Um, and the, so I think the initial law said something about HMOs uh, with the idea that doctors would be on salary, they would be rewarded for not doing studies, and it backfired to the point of the cost of not caring and having patients uh, not feel the doctors were on their side. Um, but initially, when they took over, they you know they came to our office, and I've come to not trust people who wear um, uh, shiny black shoes. Um, <laughs> I have PTSD from the people who came around offering me offers I couldn't refuse. But um, they said, uh, of course, we will never interfere with the content, the uh, content of care. And the exact thing they said was, you are the guys who went to uh, medical school. Um, but my mother taught me there was no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and, and, and so I, I never thought that this is, this is going to end well. These people are going to, um, you know, double the amount of money I get per visit, and they're going to, you know, give me a new computer and all this. I, you know, I had a feeling of dread this is not going to end well. I'm afraid we just have about a minute or so for you to just briefly touch on the answer to uh, a point you make late in the book. You suggest that the COVID-19 pandemic, for all of its difficulties, presents us with a chance to change health care from the money-driven enterprise that it has become back to something we can all be proud of. Very briefly, I'm afraid, can you just give a hint of what you're talking about there? What we did to make care more effective and efficient and um, affordable was we dropped copayments and deductibles. Uh, and the fact that we've already run this experiment and how well it worked, uh, uh, I think, teaches us that you know primary care should be free to the patient. Uh, immunizations should be free to the patient. Uh, necessary care for diabetics should be free to the patient because it will save us all money and improve the quality of care. And uh, COVID-19, for all the horror it has provoked, at least gave us that lesson that if we, um, that free care, you know, care that is free to the patient helps us all. We're in this together. We are, for better or for worse, our brother's keepers. 
Um, and as I say at the end, it's not left, it's not right, it's just do the math. Hmm. The book again is titled The The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, uh, published by Seven Stories Press and the author, Dr. Mark Vonnegut. Dr. Vonnegut, it was a pleasure and honor to speak with you about your fascinating book. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're a very good interviewer.